calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bullet Catcher, Season 2, Episode 3. Northward Bound. Our accommodations on the Northward Bound are small but grand compared to what I'm used to. Two large beds take up most of the floor space. The sheets are pure white, soft, and freshly laundered. The pillows are stuffed with feathers. The wash basin is copper. There's soap. Electric light fills the cabin and flickers whenever the boat rocks side to side. Oh, I can't enjoy any of this. I lie curled up on the floor, my arms wrapped around a bucket. I don't understand how a little rocking can make a person so sick. I groan into the floor. Cass laughs, pulling on a pair of gloves. We'll miss you at dinner, she says. You're leaving? Is it safe to walk around? Safer than damnation, Lobo says to his reflection in the mirror as he fixes his hat. Even if it wasn't, says Cass, I smelled food when I went to find your bucket. Seems worth the danger. You come find us when you're feeling better. Otherwise, we'll bring you back something, Lobo says, as they flit out the door like young lovers. So odd to see them like this, nearly carefree. I suppose it's good, but I've never known how to act in the face of other people's happiness. It happens so seldom, happiness. Growing up was all about surviving, about getting enough to eat, about finding a safe place to sleep, about protecting myself. Sometime later, I flip onto my back and stare up at the ceiling. The boat rocks. The lights flicker. Shadows appear and disappear as quickly. Picking myself up, I sit on the edge of the bed, the bucket pinched between my knees, ready in case I need it again. But maybe I'm getting used to being out on the water because... I no longer feel as sick as I had a few hours ago. The room doesn't spin quite as bad, 
and when I stand, my feet feel grounded beneath me. I check the time on the clock that stands on the bedside table. It's not too late. There might still be some food left. I pour water into the basin and splash my face. When I look at my reflection, I see the old me again. The scars, the dark bruises beneath my eyes from never getting enough sleep. It's only then that I remember the makeup. All those little touch-ups Cass had meticulously made to my face to cover the scars. Her kit sits on the vanity next to the basin. Digging through it, I pull out the different ointments, powders, and tinctures, but I haven't the faintest idea where to begin. No one will notice me anyway. I'm the unnoticeable girl. It's my superpower. Always has been. It's when I'm putting everything back that I notice the glint of metal at the bottom of the bag. Cass's knife. When I hold it in my hand, I recall the way it looked when Cass placed it on the bar at the moon house. Its blade slick with blood. I conceal the knife in a small pocket in my dress that Cass has sewn in for the very purpose of hiding a weapon and head out to find something to eat. Out on deck, the air is cold and the wind whips the ruffles on my dress. I sort of wish they would tear right off, but with only the one dress, it would probably cause more problems than it would solve. The steamboat is made of three decks. The top level, where we're staying, is mostly passenger accommodations with a covered boardwalk that wraps around it like a halo. Stairs on the port and starboard side lead from the third to the second deck, which holds the grand ballroom, complete with chandeliers, a large bar, a grand piano, and a bandstand. We walked through it when we first boarded. During dinner, I was told, they roll in round tables, set up chairs, and turn the space into a dining room, with long banquet tables set up to one side, heaped with food, and you get to line up and take as much from each dish as your plate can hold. And then if you finish that, you get to go back for more. Lobo told me all this while I was face down on the floor of our room, fighting back vomit from the seasickness. And I could have sworn I saw the makings of a devilish little smile cross his lips when he said it. The bottom deck contains the engine room, luggage storage, the cheaper accommodations, and the rooms for the valets, waiters, and crewmen. Along the railing, Couples and solitary figures take in the night air, puffing smoke into the wind. I head down the stairs to the second deck, where the crowd is larger. Here, many of the passengers stand in the afterglow of their dinner, smoking cigars and chatting. The large double doors leading to the ballroom are flung open, and from inside comes the racket of a band in full swing. I wade through the crowd and into the large room. The crystal chandeliers glitter in the brightness cast by the electric lights. The piano player is up on his feet, pounding the keys, sweat dripping from the hair hanging over his face. Up on stage, the rest of the band struggles to keep up. The horns are red with breathlessness, and the strings look ready to burst. The tables have been abandoned, and crews of waiters are gathering the used plates and silverware onto carts, which are swiftly wheeled away through a set of doors into the kitchen. The tables are being disassembled and rolled away too, and card tables are being hefted in and set up. Groups of eager gamblers mill around, swilling snake bite and whiskey, boasting about past hands and legendary bluffs. 
I'm shocked when I see Lobo with them, smiling, telling jokes, blending in easily, as if he wasn't playing a role at all. I'm so distracted that I walk straight into Cass, who must have seen me and was waiting for me to notice her. Too late, she says. They've already cleared away dinner. She must read the disappointment on my face, because then she smiles and produces from behind her back a plate heaped with chicken, potatoes, carrots, peas, and bread. You're my hero, I say, grabbing the food. We sit at one of the remaining tables, and I hunch over the plate and start shoveling the potatoes into my mouth. A raised eyebrow from Cass makes me pause. Remember, she says in a hushed tone, you're playing a role. You're the moneyed granddaughter of landowning Southern gentle people. So? I ask, spitting bits of food. So sit up straight, hold your fork like you don't intend to stab someone with it, and take sensible bites. Okay, okay, I protest, doing what she says. And for goodness sakes, stop talking with your mouth full. But even Cass's scolding can't darken my mood. The motion sickness has passed, my plate is full, and for the moment at least, we are safe and warm and on our way to rescue Nico. A roar of laughter erupts from the card table as one of the players takes a big pot. I never imagined Lobo playing cards, I say, pointing at him with my fork. Cass looks over at him and says, he was young once, and besides, he's not nearly as conservative as he likes you to think. She turns back to me, sit up. I go rigid, and Cass laughs a little to herself. You only have to put on a show for a couple days. You think you can handle that? Ask me again in a couple days, I say, forking a single pea and daintily eating it. After I finish my food, not so slyly licking the plate clean, and after Cass leaves to return to the room, I stick around to watch Lobo and the other card players. A crowd is gathered around the table, but I manage to wedge myself in between a couple of tall cowboys and station myself over Lobo's shoulder. The gamblers are loud and fill the room with cigar smoke, but it's by far the most civilized game of cards I've ever seen played. The players' guns stay safely in their holsters, and the snake bite and whiskey are drunk with a modicum of moderation. Lobo senses me hovering over his shoulder. He turns and says, If you hang around me that close, the other players will think we're cheating. Who's that, old man? One of the card players says to Lobo. Your girlfriend? This gentleman is my granddaughter, Clarissa. Well, she's just a peach, ain't she? Reckon so? The chorus of card players echoes. Taking her to the big city for the first time. She's as excited as a lightning bug, aren't you, hun? I force what I hope passes as a smile and answer, Yes, Pappy. With all luck, you'll find her a handsome northern bow. Lobo turns to look at me. His face screwed into an impish grin. He winks and says, That would truly be a blessing, all right. curtsy and smile my way out of the room. The card player's laughter trails me through the doors, and I wrap my arms around myself for warmth against the wind. 
cub. I turn, and there's Lobo. The facade of his genteel persona wiped away, replaced by the man I know. Feeling sick again? No, I'm fine. He lights up a cigarette and leans on the rail beside me, looking out at the dark water. There's a contingent of gunslingers on board. What? Are they looking for us? No. They're on furlough, heading to Gildan. That was them at the other card table, getting drunk. I peer back into the ballroom and spot them. They're nearly falling over one another as they play cards. The dealer watches, exasperated, trying to manage the game. They call for more snake bite, and when the waiter threatens to cut them off, one of them stands and draws his pistol. He doesn't raise it. He just wants the waiter to know how bad he wants another drink, and the waiter, smartly, hurries off to fetch it. Just keep your eyes peeled, Lobo says, flicking the stub of his cigarette into the water. These ones are mean. They don't worry me. I know, he says. That's what worries me. Then he reaches into his pocket and reveals a small box wrapped in blue tissue paper. He hands it to me, keeping his eyes focused on the darkened shape of the shoreline passing by. What's this? I ask, taking the box. A present, he says. For your birthday. I stare at the box, not knowing exactly what to do with it. How long has it been since someone gave me a present? Since someone remembered my birthday? Hell, I'd all but forgotten. When did you find time to get me something? Been holding on to it for a while. It's only a trinket, but you might find some use for it. Jose, you old geezer, calls one of the gamblers from the ballroom room. You gonna give us a chance to win our money back or what? Lobo smiles at me and squeezes my shoulder. Then he heads back in. Carefully, I unfold the tissue and open the box. Inside is an old brass pocket watch, scuffed and worn and newly polished. Taking it into my hands, I press the button and the case pops open. Inside, etched into the brass, is the inscription. To Lobo, from your father. And below that? For Emma. On your 17th birthday. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. It's late, but I'm not tired. On deck, a few stragglers have stuck it out in the cold, smoking or just looking at the moon, which hangs low and huge overhead. Here and there along the shore shine the lights of a small town or signal tower. The moon casts silver light along the water. I do a couple laps around the deck, trying to tire myself out, my hands wrapped around Lobo's gift as though it were a warm coal. It's late, and I should head back to the room. But I'm too happy and too full of good food to go to bed just yet. I head down the stairs to the bottom deck, where I duck inside to take cover from the chill. Here, the boat takes on a different character. The openness of the top decks gives way to cramped and narrow passages. Above, everything looks spick and span, but here the varnish on the wood walls and ceiling is cracked and peeling in the humid atmosphere. Smoke pools against the low ceiling, and the smell of coal, oil, and tobacco looms heavy in the air. I take only a few steps inside before I'm struck by the feeling that I shouldn't be here. I turn to leave, but there's a large man blocking the passage. The door to his quarters is flung open and he leans with one hand against the wall for balance, looking at the ground like he's going to vomit. In his other hand, he grips a half-drunk bottle of snake bite by the neck. His suspenders hang off his shoulders, and the grip of his shooter sticks out of his holster. He wasn't at the card table, but he's wearing a gray gunslinger uniform, unbuttoned and hanging off his shoulders like a coat. He tilts the bottle to his lips and takes a swig. When he turns and notices me, a terrible smile crosses his pockmarked face, and he slurs, Hey there, girly. I don't say anything. I turn and walk quickly away down the passage, passing the doors leading to cramped crew quarters and cheap rooms. At the far end of the hall, through the haze, I can see the door leading back out to the deck. Come back here, he groans. I just want to talk. Been so long since I talked to a pretty girl. I quicken my steps. Behind me, I hear him slam his fist against the wall with a splintering crash. Don't be rude, honey. All I want to do is talk. Then comes the thunder as he starts following me unsteadily down the passage. I pick up the hem of my dress and run. And when I dare to look over my shoulder, I see the gunslinger has broken into a run now too and is closing the gap between us. One of the doors opens, and a man pokes his head out into the hall, drawn by the racket, and the large drunkard palms his head and pushes him back into his room. Before me, maybe twenty yards down the passage, is the door leading back outside. I'm not going to make it. I try the doors as I pass, but they're all locked. I dare another look and watch as the gunslinger tilts and falls through a door, crashing into the room. A shout comes from within, then the sound of a quick brawl, 
and the man emerges back into the hallway. The man's fall gives me time to make it to the door. I turn the handle and pull, but it's locked. No, no, no. I put my foot against the wall, desperately trying to force the door open. And then he pulls me away from the door and throws me to the ground. For a moment, he just stands over me, his body blocking the light. What the hell's going on out here? Comes a voice from down the hall. I turn to look. There's a slender man standing at the entrance to his room. He has a half-smoked cigarette in his hand and a waiter's cap tilted to one side of his head. Call for help, I plead. Get back in your room, the man above me snarls, swiping the air with his hand. The skinny man retreats into his room, and I hear the door click as he engages the lock. When the gunslinger turns his attention back to me, Cass's knife is in my hand, the end pointing at his gut. He laughs, and I scramble to my feet. What do you think you're going to do with that splinter? He walks toward me slowly, his hands out in front, ready to parry my attack. I turn the knife over in my hand, and when he lunges for me, I faint left, before shifting my weight and going right, the dagger poised to bury itself into his calf. But the man's quick, and he catches my arm as I try to drive the knife into his leg. He squeezes my wrist until the pain is too much, and I drop the knife. Then he pushes me down so I'm wedged against the wall and floor. His face is right next to mine, and his snake-bit breath burns my nose. A queer expression crosses his face. I know you, girly, he says. You're the one on the posters. I don't know what you're talking about. He laughs. A disgusting, howling laugh. No. You're the one, all right. And then his eyes get all droopy, and his lips purse like a cow's asshole, and he says, But ain't no reason we can't have a little fun before I collect on that reward. It's a long boat ride. He starts pawing and ripping at my dress. I scream, but by now I know no one's coming. He presses his face up against mine, trying to kiss me. I manage to push him away, and when he tries to kiss me again, I bite down hard on his nose. The blood gushes into my mouth as I tear into his flesh. He screams and pushes me away. Finding the knife, I pull myself to my feet. He's hunched over on his knees, his hands in front of his face to catch the blood. I turn the knife over in my hand and drive it into his back. The blade grinds between his ribs, sending shivers down my arm. He howls, and suddenly he's on his feet again. He grabs me by the front of my dress and throws me at the wall. The force sends me splintering through a door into the darkness of the room beyond. I tumble down a flight of stairs and land at the bottom with a thud. When I come to, the man is standing in the doorway at the top of the stairs, trying to reach around his back to pull out the knife. All around me, machine noises drown out any other sound. As my eyes adjust to the darkness, I realize I'm in the engine room. The air is heavy with coal smoke. The furnace fills the far end of the room, the doors standing open, a bright orange and blue flame burning within. The man lets out a groan from the top of the stairs as he finds the blade and pulls it out. He throws it away. You're going to wish to hell you hadn't done that, he says. 
Anger and pain have sobered him up. Groggy and aching all over, I get to my feet. The man walks slowly, terribly, down the stairs toward me, each step a new act of menace. I look around for anything to use as a weapon and spot a shovel sticking out of the mound of coal heaped to one side of the furnace. At the bottom of the stairs, the gunslinger sees the shovel, gripped in both my hands like a sword, and draws his gun. I'm finished playing, he says. If you want to live, drop it. The words Cass spoke to me in the hotel, after the shootout at the moon house, come back to me. And I think, for the first time, that maybe she's right. Maybe a part of me does want to strike back at the world that's kicked me so many times, that's given me so much heartache and so little happiness. I'd rather be dead, I say, spitting a gob of blood. So be it, he says, and slaps the hammer of the revolver. I dodge the bullet and charge at him, the shovel raised over my head. Panic grips him and he slaps the hammer again and again, aiming wildly. The shovel is an extension of my hand. I track his aim and deflect the shots easily with the iron shovel head. And when I'm within reach, I rear back and smash his face. He staggers backwards and collapses. Kicking the gun from his hand, I bring the shovel down on him again and again, as if he were every person who ever tried to touch me against my will. Every person who kept me prisoner when all I wanted was to be free. Every person who could have helped and didn't. I hit him until his face is nothing but glistening blood in the firelight. Exhausted, I let the blood-slick shovel slip from my hands. I drop to my knees and search the man's possessions. In his pants pocket, I find the wanted posters, which I throw into the fire before leaving. The passage above is deserted, and no one peeks their head out to see the results of the commotion. I can only hope that none of them got a good look at me. Back in the room, I collapse to the floor and lean against the wall in a heap of tattered clothes, blood, and bruises. A lamp burns on the table beside the bed, where Cass is sitting and reading. What the hell happened to you? She cries, rushing to my side. But when she stoops to get a better look, I can see in her face she knows enough. And then I start crying and can't stop. And Cass pulls me in and holds me until it's over. Where? She asks, handing me a glass of water when it seems like I'm all cried out. I recount everything that happened, how I had been wandering, then my encountering the drunken man, and finally the fight in the engine room. He recognized me from the wanted poster. He had them on him. By now, Cass has brought over the basin and is cleaning my face with a damp cloth that she dips into the water, pink with blood. But at the mention of the wanted posters, she stops. He had them on him? I burned them. Lobo enters the room in a plume of cigar smoke. He seems in good humor until he sees us. He kneels beside me, examining my face and torn clothes. Who? He says. He's dead, I answer flatly. Did anyone see? Maybe, I'm not sure. He doesn't seem to know exactly what to say, so he says the wrong thing. Can the dress be saved? 
It's the only one I have. My only other clothes are my trousers and cotton shirts. Fine, sturdy clothes, but not what you'd expect some milk-fed rich girl to be wearing. Even if she is the granddaughter of a rancher. We'll have to take in my spare, Cass says. She rises and goes to her luggage, takes out her spare dress, sits on the bed and begins making alterations. Probably glad to have something to do with her hands. I don't sleep at all that night. Cass's lamp burns through the night as she makes alterations to her dress. Lobo paces the room until Cass asks him to stop for the love of God, and then he goes outside to smoke and continue pacing. He doesn't return until it's nearly light outside. It's not the first time a man has tried to force himself on me. When you grow up living in the back of a bar in a one-horse town like Sand, a girl loses track of the time she's had to defend herself. But this is the first time I've killed a man for trying. And it's the first time there have been other people around who care enough to get angry over it happening. When Lobo comes back inside, I feign sleep. He kneels beside my bed and fixes my blanket, which I had unconsciously twisted up in my anxiety. I'm sorry, he whispers. He takes the pocket watch off the nightstand and slips it into my hand before retreating to his and Cass's bed. I bring the watch close to my chest so that I can hear the ticking through my chest, like the movements of another heart. And finally, mercifully, sleep finds me. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 2 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Marco Palmieri, and executive produced by Molly Barton, performed by Inez del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona. <laughs>